0: Here was a chance for Tom fucking Izzo to like lift his team and give them something to like rally around to play above their heads finally against a good team or they whatever. And what do we see? The same thing as we saw, you know, I was describing this now, just throwing up his hands, pacing back and forth, looking into the skies, whatever. And they lose by 10, 12, 50, whatever it was. There were no way they were going to win that game. And it was all because of him.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Ben Guest, and welcome to part four of my mini-series on positive coaching. Today's guest is Coach Nick Hasselman, who runs the Fantastic B-Ball Breakdown video series on YouTube and has a podcast. I was a guest on his podcast a few weeks ago, and Nick is returning the favor and coming on my podcast to talk positive coaching. Enjoy. Coach Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Any chance I get to talk coaching, uh, I'm in. So let's start with coaching and building relationships. The coaches that you've been around who are best at building relationships, what do they do right? I think the the biggest key,
0: and we've and you know we talked about this before before we were recording, is you know you got to be able to develop trust. It's not trust that the player will do what you're asking him to do, because that's sort of built in. Everyone knows that, and that's why I get playing time, this and that, whatever. To me, I think what the key here is, is that you need to have the players trust that you want them to be as good as they possibly can be. And that's a tall order. And that that there's a lot of facets to how do you earn the trust of the player? Because if you're going to be a coach who thinks that they always have to move all the way in your direction and buy into what you want in your culture, you're just going to be upset most of your coaching career, right? Maybe get lucky every couple of years or every five, 10 years, one team will actually somehow you know align with the stars. But if you're not willing to move halfway toward the player, and, and really convince them in a service way that I want to serve you to make you as, as good as you possibly can be, then you can't develop that kind of relationship. And it doesn't mean that you need to be like best friends with everybody and, and chummy and whatever, um, but it, it certainly means that you need to be able to, and there's a thousand ways to do this, is to display the kind of interest in each and every player that you want them to, to get better. And if you can focus on that, then, it, you know, if you have a 10th, 11th guy who aren't playing as much, you might be able to tamp down some of that anxiety because they still feel like, well, you know what, I'm, a coach is helping me. Even if it's a one-on-one, roll your sleeves up, get out in the drills and talk to them and help them. I think that's mm-hmm. the biggest key is to earn that trust from the player. They have to move halfway towards them.
1: 100%. And the culture of coaching is changing for the, for the better. What do you think is behind that change or driving that change?
0: Well, you know, you could argue that in today's kids or, you know, you can't tolerate that kind of stuff. And then certainly, you know, it's not even the kids. I would just think that it's the administrations at schools simply do not tolerate that. You cannot put a hand on the kid Uh, swearing. I mean, swearing actually seems to be condoned and I'm troubled by that because I always I was sort of like the police of swearing even as a teacher on campus. Um, although at some point I think I dropped that too, just because it became impossible. Uh, you know, you walk, there's a, there's an expression, you walk around and shit long enough, you smell like it. Um, and that might have happened to me. Like I had this standard. I remember the principal like clapping me on the back when I told him, I'm like, I want to try and eradicate swearing because guys would be yelling F bombs across the quad. I'm like, this isn't appropriate, this isn't right. Um, and he knew that it probably wouldn't work and whatever, and it didn't, but uh I tried. Um but anyway, uh, there's a lot less. There's simply administratively, at least in the high school level, it, there's, there's not a lot of that is tolerated at all. You know, you're going to get parents complaining. uh, You're going to get called into the uh, AD's office or the uh, administrative office, and uh, and and it won't last long. I think you know, just doing that. Uh, So that's one reason. And I think one of the reasons why they act that way is, I mean, obviously, there's probably the fear of lawsuits at this point, which is what we live in this litigious you know environment. But I also feel like there's got to be the science behind it, where they're realizing that there's other ways to educate. And, um, you know, we're not going to tolerate that in the classroom. We certainly aren't going to tolerate it if you're in the gym. You know, it's still slow. It still happens. You still see, you know, it happening all over the place. In fact, the guy I help on Saturdays at the, with his AAU program was my assistant. And he was that, the epitome of like inner city tough coach. screaming to the kids, having them run suicides and pushups and whatever. And I, I had tried to rub my, I hope I would rub off on him more. And I think we were getting somewhere after a couple of years of that. And, you know, we don't coach together anymore very closely. And, you know, he went back the way he was. And you know what, maybe these parents think, oh, they're going to toughen up my kids. They don't mind it so much. But I'm like, I don't know. I watch a lot of this punitive uh, uh, stuff he does to them. And I'm like, that's not helping them address the deficit that they're displaying that you're mad about. Let's address that. And so As it is, um, there are just a lot more resources as well for coaches to learn more about this. I I would like to think that maybe my channel has helped that to some degree. You know, if it's not even X's and O's or just fundamentals, it's also the communication part. So there's just a lot more voices out there that I think that are getting through. and, And it's probably appealing more to these younger coaches who realize that there are just better ways to do it.
1: For you, whether it's coaching, as a player, in life, editing video, whatever it is, whatever domain What are the things that get you into flow state?
0: You know, it's funny. I mean, I'm now playing tennis and I just mentioned this before we started (laughs) and um, I cannot get into flow state, man. I get into, I'm going to break my freaking racket state uh, half the time and it takes over. It really, and by the way, it's worth it if you're a coach to do another sport that maybe you're not great at because it reminds you of what we're dealing with here, especially the mental aspect. Because again, when I am in that flow state and tennis, Yes, everything is easy in the rhythm, but like, how do you trigger that? You watch Steph Curry, and I feel like he's trained himself to enter that on command. And then every once in a while, maybe he doesn't get a good night's sleep or whatever. You can kind of see on his face and like things will bother him that shouldn't or wouldn't normally bother him, like a, th- uh, a call, you know, whatever. And he, you know, most people don't play well when they're distracted by anger for the call. So, uh, but if you're asking me specifically what I would do, I mean, I, 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 I like to think that maybe music when I try and think of like when I'm rhythmic and I'm confident, it's usually I'm thinking of like one of my favorite songs or it can, it can trigger that. I did try playing with AirPods in my ears playing tennis. That doesn't work. Cause you got to be able to mark the sound of the ball. You know what I mean? So it didn't really help me, but I thought that this was a genius. This was going to really solve my problem. And it didn't, but um, I certainly would use it in practices, you know, for basketball. And um, so I, I think music is one of those ways that you can, you can achieve that. And certainly I know we said this in my pod, but like you'll have coaches who think that they're really progressive because they'll play music like during the warm ups while they're stretching, whatever. And like, look how cool this is I'm Like, no, no, no. You got to play it like during the scrimmage. Wow. You know, and we can tap into that, like their favorite song, whatever it is these days that the kids want to listen to. And, uh, and and that will that trigger that could help to trigger it. But there's a lot, there's a variety of ways you can do it. Um, and I think that Seth probably has, probably does some sort of mental visualizations, you know, techniques uh, that can trigger that. Um, and then certainly, you know, language is another big thing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, well, d- just a, a little bit of a tangent. And, and I guess I'm your guest, Jeez. so I'm to talk a lot. I, I feel bad that I'm talking so much because I want to hear it from you too. But, um, you know,
1: the no, I love language it. And I love important. tangents too.
0: And, and tan- <laughs> well, here's a good tangent. Whenever I'm working with players, I, I usually will go up to them and say, Are you a good shooter? I got to tell you, Almost everybody says, no, I'm not really, I'm okay, whatever. I'm like, listen, you can't be a good shooter until you say you're a good shooter. We don't have to talk about you're like Clay Thompson or anything, but you're good for your position in this time, and this place, for where you are now, like that. And and I can tell you one thing, you ain't gonna be a good shooter if you say you're not a good shooter. And I think that that, the power of that, which is sort of goes into into like Tony Robbins and and neuro-linguistic programming, which is a, a completely untapped, frontier that needs to be brought into basketball coaching without question um that's powerful stuff that you can elicit a positive emotional response from a word I, I can should i tell you my story about that are we ready for 100%, that please so i i have a buddy out there art rondo who's on twitter he's out there and he and he he's he is a nlp disciple and he's gone to a lot of the um tony robbins stuff and you know tony robbins I don't even know where he exists in this day and age as far as people are listening to him, respect him. I mean, he certainly is as as you know, successful as any businessman out there, right? He runs these these clinics, whatever you want to call them, and people spend, spend a lot of money to go to them. and there are you know, a lot of people. So anyway, the point being that i I, I pulled him aside. We were at um, uh, Sloan, the Sloan MIT conference you know one hundred years ago. I pulled my buddy Art aside. I said, "Okay, give me something I can use from this program that would help me coach." He goes, "Okay," he said, "Pick a word or a phrase. Don't use it all the time, but when something really good in practice happens, drop that in there. You know, every 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 five, six, eight. Don't you can't use it a lot. Just a little bit." And so that year, remember when uh, Whoop-Em Gangnam Style was, was the big, all the rage? So mm-hmm. Gangnam Style became, you know, my phrase I, I would use. And we would, you know, high post, bounce pass, layup, blow the whistle. That was Gangnam Style. And they'd laugh because I'd mispronounce it, whatever, and it would be a thing. I wouldn't do it all the time. But I set it up from August to that first day of practice, and I did it. And then I cut to, I, I, no one will believe me, but this is true as far as I'm, I remember it. Um, we're on the road against, we have a home and away series against our, like this little bitter rival, uh, in our, not in our division, but they're nearby. And we always play either at their house and then our house the next year. So we're their place. We're down. It's halftime. I'm talking to them in the locker room, trying to figure out what to do. And I said, you know what we need? We need Gangnam style. Their eyes <laughs> got wide. They all started to smile and I shit you not. We went out there and blew them off the court in the third quarter. And I kind of felt like I was cheating. I literally felt like, because I had set that up and I, I had manipulated that from them. And uh, who knows why or where, or what, what, the, what why that happened that way. Um, but I'm telling you, that's my story. That's how I remember it happening. And um, I'm telling you, you could, you, could develop, you know, anybody might think, oh, I'm like an X's and O's. I'm not really a great like players coach, whatever. You know, if you can have doctors that can learn bedside manner, you know, And my, my wife's a doctor. I, I met a lot of the people that she was in medical school with. Like these were not bedside manner people, but they have these classes and you learn how and they give you techniques. There's no question we could finally do that and have it be an ordered um, curriculum for coaches to learn these things. Uh, I don't think I've ever gone to a coaching clinic where a coach is offered that kind of communication skills, you know, that everyone's all, here's a great drill, right? Or here's the, but I'm talking about, you know, uh, how, to, how to motivate and communicate and how to use science. Uh, we, we need, that's why Tony Robbins needs to like, you know, get more in the sports space. Um, I would suspect guys like Bill Jackson did this without really necessarily knowing that he was doing it, but like inherently it seemed like he would develop this idea that it would work. Um, but that was probably alchemy and, and just like lucky Uh, You don't have to be lucky anymore. We don't need Mm -hmm. to say, Oh, that guy's just that way. No, you can create that your reality out of that. And, um, and, and cheat basically get your players to play well.
1: Okay. With your tangent. Now I have a tangent question. Sloan conference. Yeah. What's your take on it?
0: I went for a couple of years back in, you know, 2011, 2012, it's fucking freezing. And so I live in LA, man. I'm telling you, that's my biggest takeaway. It was freezing and we'd be walking around places. I mean, I can't believe Boston gets that cold, but are you asking about like the analytics movement itself?
1: No, I mean, there are certain um, analytics stuff that I'm, uh, I I love, but with Sloan, I've heard like most of the papers aren't peer reviewed and, you know, I come from an academic background. So I, you know, my, my perception never having attended and not speaking of research, not really doing my research into it is that a lot of this stuff is more surface than really um, getting deep into, into the numbers. Is that your take or am I off?
0: Yeah. Well, half of my take will be, i spent most of my time networking and not in the actual things, believe it or not. Right. But I would duck into some and uh, because let's, let's face it. That's really what it's for. I wanted to meet, you know, meet with Daryl Morey and whatever. And, and, and I met Bill James, like that was a big thing for me, but yeah, there, there's no question that they, a lot of the presentations are quant stuff numbers without any understanding of the game. And I can remember specifically, like, you know, and somebody that people know, and he's big now, he presented a paper about, you know, something about the the rebounds and this and that. And he's like, we don't really understand exactly why this all of a sudden this happens and this, whatever. And I pulled him aside, I said, this is why. And he like, didn't even want to acknowledge that it was so weird, like the weirdest interaction I had. I mean, I think people sometimes think that they know everything, right? So whatever. But like, there, there was no depth of basketball knowledge to be able to help him explain And by the way, I'm kind of not like I'm bitter, but like the guy should have just hired me. I would have been able to help him with all of those questions that they seem to clearly have and not understand it would make their data better. But um, so yeah, so that you would encounter that a lot uh, of, of stuff where like they could say, well, here's, here's like a supermarket and like maybe you'll be able to f- figure out how to go shopping and, and make a dinner, right? But it's like, there's, it's just all over the place. And um, it's not always in the context. Now, that said, whenever I use a stat and the analytics people think I use it wrong, then they're the ones who start yelling context and you don't know what you're talking about. This is ridiculous, right? And meanwhile, I'm the guy who's actually watching the stuff and, 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 and know what's going on on the court anyway from the sneakers to the head, you know. So anyway, so Sloan is one of those things where I think it's kind of lost its luster. I don't think it has the same, at least um, influence as it used to. And if that's the case, then it probably isn't worth doing because you're not gonna get the same networking then. But um, mm-hmm. I haven't been, I, I listen, I, I'm fully to admit, I haven't been for a long time, but I do remember like on Twitter having FOMO Um, having gone for the first, like, you know, for 2011, 2012, I didn't go after that and having FOMO for a few years where everyone's out there and they're tweeting pictures of each other or whatever. I don't, that doesn't bubble up like that anymore to me. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons is because it's just sort of like lost its luster. Interesting.
1: So you mentioned Phil Jackson earlier and meditation is something that's important to me personally, but incredible tool for dealing with life's inevitable ups and downs. And as a coach, it was incredibly impactful. And the research is clear, speaking of peer reviewed research, plenty of peer reviewed research showing that meditation helps with both learning and with getting into flow state and performing in high stakes environments. And so I I think that meditation was one of, you know, several spices in Phil Jackson's secret sauce that made him so effective. You know,
0: that just reminded me because when I was in high school, Like, you know, I was um, diagnosed with ADHD, you know, as a 38 year old, but it made a lot of sense after thinking about Mm -hmm. like, okay, that would explain why this didn't help me as much. And that helped me. And by the way, it's kind of why I coach It's because, and, and, and I taught, it was because there were teachers like, you know, if they just would have said this one sentence, I would have been able to ace it. Like I would have understood it so much better. And I guess that was like ADHD partly. So when I teach and I coach, I kind of teach to that. Knowing that if you don't have it, then you'll get it anyway, and you'll be ahead of the game. And then anybody else who Mm -hmm. needs those extra sentences will help. But uh, just to talk about flow state again, I remember when I would play, I would I would miss shots and warm ups before games, and I never and I always knew it wouldn't matter because the intensity and the the stimulus of the game itself was my medication, and I would I would it would just it would simulate me to the point where I was so locked in and focused, like I shot fifty percent from three, um, and never had to worry about you know by the way you know all catch and shoot and all wide open because if you didn't do that then you would be benched right um man wouldn't it have been nice to be able to take a few off the dribble and then shoot only 40 percent from three i mean oh my god nonetheless
1: um right. wait wait when you say you shot 50 percent from three that's like that was your that's your stat you shot 50 percent from three in high yeah. school uh
0: yeah Holy now that shit. by the way that that the one year i did that i remember was sophomore year you so remember the three-point line had come in um that year for me. Wow. And so I shot like three or four game. I had one game where I like went eight for 11 or something like that, but like I could really, and I, you know, I, I had a kind of a weird shot. Uh, I, I didn't have anybody ever taught me, uh, and it eventually got more classically looking, but, um, but yeah, but, but, you know, and again, the point was that there was something about the game and the stimulus. Like people talk about ADHD, like when they drive, they like to drive because it's so much stimulus and it really kind of feeds whatever the brain needs. If you're not taking medication, which I didn't ever do before. In fact, there was a funny thing, maybe even in my yearbook, And I didn't and never realized this until after I got the yearbook back where they don't have little blurbs about you. People can write stuff in. And it was Mm -hmm. one of them was always talks while driving. And I was like, yeah, I was probably like so stimulated, whatever that I was like talking with, like, you know, even like what I'm doing now. This is stimulating to me talking about coaching. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's that flow state where, you know, my mind has been really, you know, um, cloudy all day. And I haven't been I played tennis really badly. But all of a sudden, like I'm getting much better recall of things just by in this, you know, you and I talking, which is uh, mm-hmm. which is why it's exciting. I might sound a little bit manic because I'm like, it's really gotten me going. Um, you sound excited. That was the whole tangent. But what what sparked this whole thing?
1: Well, I was asking about you shooting 50 percent from three. Oh, yeah. But before that, we were talking about Phil Jackson and meditation being the secret sauce. Yeah, I, for... I wish we had
0: that then. I wish we had right. meditation because, again, you know there is a there's an overriding uh, that that it becomes manic sometimes if it's too stimulating, and it would have helped me for sure uh, having practiced a little bit of meditation. You know, in my adult life, um, and we talked about this here before. Like yeah, when Phil Jackson's book first came out, Sacred Hoops. Sacred Hoops. And I was oh I was coaching this team. This was the team I was coaching. My old freshman, you know, my whole high school team, my old freshman team. We would do this. We would uh, close our eyes and practice meditation in the locker room before the games, and it was, and it, it, it was really cool. And they were into it, and it really, really, really helped. It did, definitely sort of cemented or sealed in the practice of what we were trying to learn and picture and visualize. Mm-hmm. And and you know, interesting enough, there's still some of those players who I see, like who are in LA and I'll run into every once in a while, which is also amazing because they're almost my, I wasn't that much older than that. So yeah. So it, so you bring it up in the t- context of like, yes, thumbs up. We should all be doing that. I think everyone would benefit, you know, you know, you know if, what
1: if- I, I read about, or not read, I was listening to a podcast that it's a podcast called new books. They have a bunch of different subcategories for like new book sports is how I originally heard about it. And I was on their new book sports podcast, but they have one called new books. I think it's mindfulness and spirituality. And they had an academic who just written a book about meditation and he cited a study. I haven't gone and tracked down the study yet, but they would look at communities and then the intervention they would do is they would get a certain percentage of the community to start meditating and crime in the community dropped, right? Because Whatever the threshold was, once it got above, let's say 6% of people in in whatever community was sort of meditating, something about the interactions they were having with people that those people then interacted with others and everything was more empathetic and kind and and thoughtful and crime dropped.
0: I'm I'm a science guy. Like if you can show me analytics and you can show me studies that show how important the brain is to actually functioning on, on the court, then great, like let's get better Without even having to touched a basketball,
1: and you referenced Tom Izzo earlier. And we talked about this on your podcast that incident a couple of years ago where, I mean, he was just on the verge of punching one of his players. I think he missed a block out or something, and then afterwards, you know, they both talked about the incident. You know, I love Coach Izzo and so forth. And after we talked about that, after we stopped the podcast, I was thinking about that. And there's a concept in parenting called um, trauma bonding parenting, where you have a parent who's abusive, hits their kid, beats their kid, but then you know hugs their child and is in tears with them. I'm so sorry I did this. And uh, the parent loves their child, but they're also traumatizing their child and then linking the love with the trauma unknowingly. And it was in, in a very small way, that was an example of trauma bonding, I think.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, and I can guarantee you Izzo is never gonna say, I'm sorry. And if he did, he'd be like, I'm sorry that you made me scream and yell at you and grab you by the shirt collar. I'm sorry that you did that. You know, that's that's exactly what he would say, because you can see the response. Like when I criticized him and that tweet went viral, like he heard that. I'm sure he saw what I said or somebody whatever, because LeBron weighed in and like Scott Van Pelt weighed in and and they were defending him um you know but based on the number of likes i got in that tweet it i was Wait, it, like like
1: lebron and scott van pelt waited on your tweet or on the incident
0: uh, i mean he weighed in on on it but like it clearly was driven by my tweet because i don't think anyone else had shared or talked about it and you know it sparked the whole thing and then van pelt went on i mean i you know listen i know he knows what i do and i'm, I'm sure he saw it and i'm sure he was like look at this you know a, a scott van pelt of all people is going to pretend like he's tough and whatever i mean whatever at any rate um it was, um, it, it was, it was so uh, troubling to me to have to, and, I, and listen, I like interaction. That's great. You know, it was, and, and I, okay. I was a little bit harsh because I kind of said, I cannot wait for this kind of coach for this kind of coach or whatever to retire and go away.
1: You know, why, I didn't, why is, I didn't that, why is that harsh? And, you know, why is that harsh.
0: I don't think you know, that's you know, harsh. You know, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm telling this guy, just you know, retire already, whatever it was. And so in my penance, I tried to respond to as many, of these horrible replies to my tweet as possible to sort uh, to get back to being like, okay, let's get back to being, you know, let's engage a little bit. Do you think there's a better way that he could have handled that? You know, and like, it didn't go anywhere, you know, anything that you saw that that Izzo was doing, which if you didn't see bald fist lunging at the player had to be restrained and put back in his chair, which people praised, People praise, like, you know, look at this culture where the the players feel good enough to put their hands all over the coach and yank him back because he's about to punch a player. Like, what are we doing here, man? And um, and so, you know, I would then get the same vitriol back in my face that he was doing. And as if that was justified because I'm soft or whatever? I mean, I had girl volleyball players in high school calling me the P word. You know what I mean? I was like, what are we doing? And by the way, that as an aside, what I took from that, there's enough of them. It's a lot where I was like, there must be a lot of, you know, in my high school, there was a man, a man who coached the girls volleyball team. Maybe that's kind of um, common. And maybe these men are like, I'm going to toughen these girls up. I'm going to show them whatever. And so the girls feel like they need that kind of coaching. And then they, they're calling me out for like saying this is not necessary. um. And uh, anyway, the point being, though, like, you know, the thing that they, everyone want to come back to, and by the way, Aaron Henry has a good game after that. It could be a, the next year, and they'll yell, see? see what that good coaching did? A year right. later, is it anything about that, tough, toughened him up. Do you know what happened immediately after he almost punched the kid? The kid for like 10 minutes was throwing the ball at the other team like he was on their team. That's how bad it was. He had no emotional equilibrium at all. Um, and it was, a, by the way, oh, it was just a, you know, an NCAA tournament game. OK, Ben, it wasn't like <laughs> playing uh, Appalachian State, in the, you know, in a, in a warm up game for the season. This is a fucking right. tournament game that they're going to like you out. You're gone if you lose. By the right. way, cut to next year, year after that, whatever. And Henry's still there. Uh, it's a, they're playing the play in game to make the tournament. They now they have this 65, whatever the hell they do now with it. They're mm-hmm. playing this game. Win, win or go home. Uh, they're up by 10. And it's like 30 to 20, which in that kind of low scoring game, it's like a 20 point lead. Right. It's such a grind out game. Okay, pick and roll, last play of the game for the other team. They, the guy pops, hits a three, whatever. He comes screaming, yelling, running, grabs the guy in the tunnel in front of the, everybody and starts, you know, and the guy's trying to run and walk away, but then he, he turns and they have this horrible interaction. Meanwhile, they had, they're they up like seven, which is like a 14-point lead and whatever. And they're on their way to get into the NCAA tournament. What happens out of that? You know in the, in the locker room in that halftime, he just spent the whole time stewing about it. Instead of saying, "Okay, guys, this is great. We got a we got a, a um, what did I say? Seven point lead. I think it was said Maybe it was more. And, and you know, all we have to do is tighten up this. Eh, let's fix that pick and pop a little bit, and we'll be we'll be golden. And what happens? They come out as flat as possible. The other team runs them off the floor, and the mother sorry, the, uh, the Michigan State players couldn't even throw the ball down in the low post by the end. They were they were so rattled and so shaken by this. And and what you have on the sideline is Izzo pacing, throwing his arms up, looking down, exasperation all over the place. Uh, Same thing happened because, by the way, after we criticized him in that from the first time two years ago, they went on a run. He kind of stopped doing this. He was extremely um, combative in the the press conferences and really awful, um, uh, uh, what's the word? uh, When you're not serious, you are... Oh, my God, this is uh, – I wasn't a flow state. Sarcastic, sorry. Mm. Sarcastic with his responses. Oh, yeah, you know, we we went and we gave him a hug. We asked him nicely if they get some more rebounds at halftime. And, and you know, it was really nice. Like this bullshit he was saying. But meanwhile, he did calm down a little bit. And they they got all the way to the final eight maybe. But in that game, they're down by 10. Clearly a better team. Maybe it was Virginia. Here was a chance for Tom fucking Izzo – to, like, lift his team and give them something to, like, rally around, to play above their heads finally against a good team or they whatever. And what do we see? The same thing as we saw, you know, I was describing this now, just throwing up his hands, pacing back and forth, looking into the skies, whatever, and they lose by 10, 12, 15, whatever it was. There were no way they were going to win that game. And it was all because of him. I don't know. So, Tom, I'd love to, you know, give you a hug and say hello and, and, and you know, whatever, but, um, but I, I cannot stand the way you coach.
1: Well, it's almost, we should call it trauma coaching, right? And the destructive part of it is then players who play under that type of coach and that type of culture internalize it to the extent that they say, I need that type of coaching. Right? I got so many tweets. And now what do you do?
0: So many tweets saying that's what I need. And I, I, I wanted, I really almost like wanted to cry whenever I read that because yeah, it just means that they never had a coach that practiced emotional intelligence. And if they had, they would realize what the difference is. Um, It's sad. And I can, I, I, that's why we need those coaches to retire and go away. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I got two more questions for you. Emotional equilibrium. What are best practices around that?
0: And then another term I use is emotional intelligence, which I don't know if I invented it, but I must have read it and then pretended I invented it. But um, emotional stability is what you said. Equilibrium. Equilibrium. Oh, yeah. So, like, for instance, when I coached uh, at the it was a big inner city high school in L.A., you know, the kids had tumultuous lives outside, you know, uh, outside the, the, the court. And I had no desire to add to that emotionally. Right by ranting and raving and being that crazy guy, I wanted them to know when they came, they, they, they know what to expect every time they walked in the gym for practice. You know, now we can't talk about emotional stability in the sense that where it's like, well, you're just kind of non-energy and you're just talking like this the whole time and no one gets rallied or riled up. No. Um, I think it's, it's the appropriate response to actions that you see on the court that can, I would hope increase the amount of positive actions on the court. And, you know, obviously you want to limit the negative things. But I, uh, I, by, by the way, negative things happening like in a practice court is great because that's when you learn, right? It's how you react to those is whether or not you turn the corner and get better at those things. And so emotional intelligence is how I call it or emotional stability, you know, is you don't want to create an environment where it's just tumultuous and chaotic. Um, you know, in terms of you creating the chaos by your the way you, you're talking and the way you're moving, it doesn't have to be talking. By the way, it could be the way your body language is. The irony here is that the the real improvement is happening from the chaos. So you could be one of those coaches that wants like the perfect lines and the perfect drills, but in reality, it's when the drills get messy is when they learn a lot quicker and a lot better. Mm-hmm. That chaos is fine. I like that. But if you're then going to compound that by then starting to detonate all over everybody, you know, five, six times a practice, um, it just, it destroys what you're trying to do and certainly limits the amount of, um, of growth you can have as a team. Um, you know what I mean? Like you can get there and we've seen it, but it tends to be a short term. And if we're talking about building a long-term, uh, you know, and you, I know you can get into more of the science of like how the gray matter works in the brain and informs, Connections that will then mean uh learning and and improvement in play. Um, we we certainly know that like the instability of of emotions from a coach specifically can harm those connections being made chemically in the brain. And once you understand that, and we talked about this before, like I always ask a coach, like, what's your goal as a coach in a game? Because you know, you have two radically different goals. Compared to a practice and in the game, and in the practice, you might even be able to rationalize, like you know, getting upset and arguing, and, and maybe being a little bit more like histrionic. It could be a word, but in the game, like, what is your goal? It's, it's it's too vague of a question. It's not the easiest thing to answer. But what I try and hear, or try and hope to get to, would be my goal as a coach in a game is to get my players to play as well as they possibly can. Yep. And if that's your goal, by the way, so like if Tom Izzo truly had this goal in mind, he would never do the bullshit that he does on ranting and ranting on the sideline because he knows scientifically that that would impede his players from playing as well as they possibly could. He has no goal. This is not him under control. Even when he claims he's under control, this is not under control. This is an ego thing that is wildly out of control that he'll like, I'm I'm, like Italian. He'll like hide behind like some sort of bullshit heritage thing as if that's
1: okay. It's an inner child throwing a tantrum.
0: Yes, it's an inner child throwing a tantrum because he doesn't have a goal. You know what I mean? Like if he had the goal, he wouldn't do that. And so that's what I try and encourage most players. And I and I listen. you might think i'm some crazy like zen master who's got the perfect family whatever i cannot talk to my freaking daughter i cannot say the right things i always screw it up with her i, I apparently accuse her of lying every interaction we've ever had of her entire life you know now because i said something one thing wrong and I wrong you know even though i pride myself in language especially on the basketball court i try and do it <laughs> in real life it doesn't work always that well but um but If you have a goal, it's certainly more often than not, you're going to be able to have that experience and that that, uh, interaction that you need that will be optimal. And when we're talking about analytics, we're talking about efficiencies, we're talking about those things, your communication should be optimal. I mean, I think, you know, John Wooden, they studied John Wooden to figure out why is this guy so much better than everybody else? And they really couldn't come up with anything. He ran all the same drills. He ran all the same stuff, same equipment, same gyms, whatever. You know, I think what they ended up coming up with was there was a communicative style that he used. And it was a lot, a lot of it had to do with like short bursts where he's not going to drone on and on like I am right now. And, um, you know, and by the way, that's a young coach thing, man. And I, I was guilty of it. And I found myself, you know, w- with not a lot of practice, I went and coached a game on Saturday for the first time in a while. And I caught myself like, I'm, I'm like, I'm talking way too much here. But, um, you know, it, it, was the, it was short and concise. If you read Giant Steps, which is uh, Kareem's biography, he even talks about that, like in the, in the, in the, in the most, and it's weird what you remember and what you don't. Like, why I remember reading this novel when I was 12, you know, this is a long time ago. Um, but I remember this passage where he says, like, it was like, in, in the most intense moments, his language would get even more focused and clearer and concise, less words, right.
1: and right. they got right to what you needed to know. And it was like comforting. So um, and, and that and that research you're referencing, I'm familiar with it. It was, I think, a couple of grad students at UCLA. They literally tracked in practice everything Coach Wooden said. And what they found was he spoke much less than whatever their control group of coaches was. And the language was always incredibly specific, incredibly direct, and almost always or usually framed in a positive way.
0: Right. I think it was it was at three to one. I think that's where we came up with three or four mm-hmm. to one uh, positive, negative, which, you know, I, I coaches could rebel against that. because It's like, I can't keep track and whatever. And it, it's hard, you know, but, it, but it's, it's important. And once you get into that frame, because it took me a while to kind of, I remember when I first came, became the head coach in 2010, I had felt like I had the X's and O's down pretty well. I, I knew all the drills. I knew how to do that. I really wanted to improve in the communication and motivation part, which is why I sought out my, you know, my buddy Art about the, you know, um, you know the uh, neuro-linguistic programming and that kind of thing. Like, what's what, what's the frontier there that we can explore? And, uh, but it wasn't easy. And, and, you know, trying to eliminate, like, here's the thing he even told me, you know, Aside from using a word that you can then, you know, elicit a positive emotional response from, there are other words that already exist in our language that would do the, neg- the opposite of that, that are just built in. He's like, you could yell at a kid, you know, you could yell, no, really loud and angry at a kid, and you can, you can turn him from a 17-year-old senior or whatever in high school, he could be like, a, he can literally be reduced to like a seven-year-old. Who just broke the vase in his parents' house and is now in trouble and is now not emotionally, uh, you know, stable? Uh, his equilibrium is off for like 20 minutes. Well, if you yell that like that in with six minutes ago in the fourth quarter, he ain't getting back to emotional equilibrium before the game is over. And now right. you're now you're in trouble.
1: Back, so, back to flow so, state, right? Now no, you wanted to eliminate
0: words thinking. like, no, like that. that's interesting and tough. And so this all goes back to like, even the ADHD thing about me, like always knowing there was something, a better way to do this, even in the teaching in the classroom, uh, there's a better way to teach shooting. I, I mean, I, I think I had a Bobby Knight guy uh, in my you know for fifth sixth fifth or eighth grade coach and he'd fireballs at us and he would you know pin you against the wall with it by, by your neck on a cinder block wall, and it was awful stuff and you know in meanwhile, I so I always knew and that's pretty much what motivated me was to know that there was there were better ways to do all of this. And that goes from the fundamentals of teaching to the uh, the communication version of it and then into the classroom too. So I taught in in high school for uh, several years and uh, that's sort of what motivated me was always sort of figure out like there has got to be a more optimal way to do that. You know, it's it's hard to know if you actually were successful or not doing that, but I will tell you what I would do now as a coach, um, there's guys in England who have brought on my show who have revolutionized a a new way of coaching, which is player-based. But one of the things they would do is every practice they would have the players give feedback on how the coach did in that practice. And I can tell you uh, until they told me that, I would never have done that. I would never have allowed a player to tell me how I did. Are you kidding me? But I got to tell you now, it's like, that's the feedback you want. Like when I do my videos on YouTube, I need the comments to know, okay, that wasn't a good idea or that didn't work or
1: whatever. So I can you know continue to improve and get better at what I want to do. And- coach Nick, this was a pleasure and a treat as always. Thanks for just chopping it up about... All these different aspects of coaching that you and I are both fascinated with. And please tell everybody where they can find you.
0: Well, if you type in b ball on YouTube, it'll just autofill for b-ball breakdown. So that's pretty much the gateway for everything. And then Twitter is a, a much more of a it's just a, a lot more of a free form conversation there. And you know, people sometimes like, oh my God, he responded to me, but I'm like, Yeah, I respond to everybody. So you can always find me b ball breakdown. Uh, Even Tom is, though, yeah. What
1: what sorry, what is it on Twitter? B Ball breakdown. breakdown.
0: It's all B-Ball Breakdown all the time. Instagram, Twitter, you know, Twi- uh, Twitch I have, but no. Uh, what's the other one? TikTok. I have a TikTok even.
1: Nice. Fantastic. All right, Coach Nick, I'll see you in LA. All right, Ben, can't wait. That was my conversation with Coach Nick. You can find all of my work at benbow.substack.com. That's benbow.substack.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment and rate and review the podcast. Thank you and have a great day.